1: Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area. Call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogi. Study and show yourself approved
0: to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Welcome to the Bible Line. If you are a first-time listener, for the next hour we'll be taking people's questions that they may have as they've been opening God's Word, maybe a personal challenge, something they're having difficulty understanding, or trying to apply Scripture to a given situation in their life or ministry in their local church. So if we can be of help, as Rick just said, the phone number locally is 843 525-1859 Five two five eighteen fifty nine, or our toll-free number uh, we broadcast through the internet around the world 24-7 and our uh, toll-free number is 877 the call letter is WAGP 980 or you can email us here directly into the studio and the email address is TBL for the Bible line TBL at net. and when you email us it will pop up right here on the screen in front of us If you call live, we give preference to live callers. And so, Rick, let's go
1: ahead and we'll get started today. Indeed, Pastor, we've got a number of questions that have already come in, so let's get to them. Uh, This person writes from Beaufort, I remember in a sermon a while back, you mentioned Matthew 24, verses 40 and 41, as not being rapture verses. Could you please explain why? Well, let me just turn there. Uh, Matthew uh,
0: chapters 24 and 25 are what we typically call the Olivet Discourse because it took place on the top of the Mount of Olives. And as they were up there on the Mount of Olives, it says as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, and that was the typical uh, stature of a, a rabbi, they would sit and teach. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And so then Jesus begins to unfold uh, really the events that will transpire uh, during the time of the tribulation. And so in verses uh, 5 through uh, 14 here, he speaks about hearing of wars and rumors of wars. Kingdom rising up against kingdom, uh, famines, earthquakes, so forth. Uh, These very events are unfolded in the early chapters of the Revelation. Uh, We've always had these things, but in an intensity like we've never seen before during the time of the tribulation, like a rheostat that's turning up, things get worse and worse and worse. And the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations, and then the end shall come. Uh, there will be a preaching of the gospel through 144,000 Jewish people, uh, plus converted Gentiles, an untold number that John likens to the sand on the seashore, who will be evangelists during the time of the Great Tribulation. These are people who never before, in power and clarity, heard the plan of salvation, And they'll be sharing the gospel with millions of people across the planet. And what we have not been able to do will be accomplished during the time of the great tribulation. Sometimes this verse is, well, you know, we, before Jesus can come back, we've got to get the gospel to everyone. We do. I mean, we're commanded to do that, but we haven't pulled it off yet. And it really won't be completed until the time of the great tribulation period. And then in uh, twenty four fifteen, he hits an event in the middle of the tribulation therefore when you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken of through daniel the prophet standing in the holy place let the reader understand those who are in judea flee to the mountains and so forth and he describes at that particular event which daniel 9 tells us takes place right in the midi- middle of the 70th week right in the middle of this seven-year period Um, it's going to get really, really bad, uh, like the world has never seen. In fact, Jesus will say, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those who are believers and living and converted uh, during that time, the days will be cut short. And then he goes into uh, the second coming. He talks about immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon shall not give its light. The stars will fall from the heaven. You know, a lot of people are trying to make significance of the blood moon that we're doing and it sells books and everything else. But um, that's not the context of the prophecy that God gave through his old Testament prophet. Uh, this is going to happen uh, along with other events. The stars literally falling out of the skies, uh, which will be the sign of the son of man appearing and of course, um, he then applies it beginning in verse 32. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Some try to put great emphasis on the fig tree being Israel because it is uh, pictured in the Old Testament as Israel. But Jesus also adds in Luke's gospel in all the other trees. There are certain trees that uh, put out early buds, and when you see the buds being put out, you know, well, summer's coming. Uh, Right now where we live, uh, the the buds in the trees are are beginning to pop out, and we know, oh, we're not far away. Uh, Summer's coming. Uh, The heat is on the way. Well, even so, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly, I say to you, this generation shall not pass away until all these things take place. In other words, those who are alive, who witness the events that Jesus described covering seven years, it begins in Matthew 24 in verse 4, all the way through uh, the second coming of Christ. Those who are alive will see the second coming of Christ. And then um, he says, uh, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For in those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking. They were marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the son of man be. Then there shall be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. Just like in Noah's day, those who were uh, taken away in the flood... Uh, met God in judgment and those who were remaining in the ark were left there in safety. And so he's making a parallel between what happened in the day of Noah and what will happen at this future time. This is not contextually a reference to the rapture. And no one even viewed it that way until uh, uh, Hal Lindsay wrote a book called the late great planet earth that gained tremendous popularity Uh, It sold millions and millions of copies because few people were addressing prophetic events. And people, believers and unbelievers alike, have a real keen interest in these kinds of things. And so he came up with the idea that, oh, this is a reference to the rapture. And since it sold so many millions of books, that idea has been, you know, kind of taken off. The seed was planted. But he went to Dallas Seminary where I uh, went to school And um, I remember we would use Hal Lindsey as an illustration of uh, a poor exegetical decision. Uh, It's unfortunate he propagated that idea because that's not what's in the context. He's talking about those who are carried away in judgment and those who are left to rule and reign on the earth with the Lord Jesus as he establishes his kingdom. And just as Noah entered into a brand new world, uh, so those who are left here will enter into a rejuvenated world uh, that Christ will rule and reign for for a thousand years. So, again, the the reason I took the time to start in the beginning was to look at the context. And the context is not talking about events that precede the rapture, but events that happen at the end of the tribulation period. Now, there's certainly application for us in that we should always be alert And we should be ready just like um, someone would be ready with a sense of expectation uh, because we don't know what time of the night the thief will come. Neither do we know the hour when the son of man will come. So we are to be ready. And certainly when you see God setting the uh, stage for all of these events to take place, like the regathering of Israel physically. There's other things that will happen during this great tribulation period. Uh, the Jewish people are going to be uh, converted in a wholesale way where millions of Jewish people in Israel are going to believe that Jesus is their Messiah. Well, before there can be a spiritual uh you know, rejuvenation of the people of Israel, there has to be a physical gathering. And that has pretty much already taken place. Israel has become a nation. They've gone from 600,000 to 6 million. And I just read again yesterday, are Jews welcomed in Europe? Question mark. And it was written by a Jewish man. And his point was, you know, a lot of people out of guilt as a result of the Holocaust were very, you know, compassionate towards the Jewish people, but that day is now gone. And the persecution is increasing across Western Europe. And uh, this well-known Jewish man basically said, look, we're not welcome there. We need to leave. We need to go to Israel. So God continues to regather his people in the land. Anyway, great question. I appreciate it. Let's go to our first live caller who's
1: been waiting. Indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line.
2: Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Um, my teen year old sister asked me a question, and I did not know the answer to it. So I'm hoping you can help. Um, We believe the Bible teaches that when we die, our soul, our spirit, either goes to heaven if we're believers or to hell if we're not believers. So she asked me, Where did Jesus' soul go when he died? So um, I'm hoping you can point me in scripture to uh, places where I can answer that for her. Thank you.
0: I'm going to listen
2: to your response.
0: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, When the Lord Jesus died, Uh, there was a sense right on the cross where he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So he he gave up his spirit. And, uh, you know, some would say, well, he physically actually went into the presence of the Father. If he did, it was for a short time. Because we have a passage uh, that really mimics what we often read in what we call the Apostles' Creed. Uh, You know, the Apostles' Creed, it's not written by the apostles, but it's... um, you know, a third century. There's other creeds like it, like the Nicene Creed that some would put in the fourth century, and but they're basically summaries of what the apostles taught, and what they affirmed, and what they believed um, God's people should espouse to. Um, and so, in the Apostles' Creed, it says uh, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, he was dead, buried, uh, descended into hell and on the third day he was raised from the dead and of course we know from the rest of the bible he walked on the earth for 40 days and at the end of 40 days uh, he ascended uh, directly to the father so we read in first peter chapter 3 uh, in verse 17 for it is better if god should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong he's talking about christians who suffer and He'll pick up on this theme in the fourth chapter that Christians suffer for different reasons, sometimes because they bring it upon themselves. Uh, but sometimes they suffer for the sake of Christ because they're living a godly life. And uh, that's the ideal way to suffer. Not because you've broken the law, because Christians aren't above the law and Christians sometimes break the law and do stupid things. So that's why he'll say in four 15, by no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name, let him glorify God. And so he's dealing with that theme here in 317, 1 Peter 317, for it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the just, that's him literally the word just is not there. It's an italics in the new American standard, which tells you it's not a part of the Greek text, but it's there just to smooth it out because it reads a little awkwardly. It's a little bit wooden. We'd say uh, not to have it there, but it literally reads for Christ also died for sins, just for unjust. Um, the NASB, like most translations say the just for the unjust, meaning him for us. We're unjust. He's just why in order that he might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh. Remember he suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was dead, but made alive in the spirit. Please note not alive in the flesh. That's not what it says. It says alive in the spirit in which, and it's um, the word, which is um, modifying the spirit. Uh, in the Greek New Testament, but that's pretty evident that the nearest antecedent is his spirit in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Now, some, uh, some heretical people have tried to argue from this text of scripture that Jesus had a spiritual resurrection, but not a physical resurrection. So there was a pastor in Hilton Head maybe a decade ago that on Easter Sunday announced that Jesus did not bodily rise from the dead, But he was raised up in his spirit, and he's raised up in our hearts. And and so sometimes people spiritualize the Bible, and when they speak, say, of the resurrection, they're not talking about a literal, physical, actual resurrection, because that would be a miracle, and miracles don't happen. And this is why it's really important you listen carefully, because people can use the language of historic Christianity and then reinterpret it. And so when they speak of the second coming of Christ, they don't mean that he's literally physically actually coming to judge the living and the dead, but he's going to rise up in our hearts. He's going to come again in our hearts and maybe the world will become more Christianized. Um, Now the physical, literal, actual bodily resurrection is affirmed three verses later, but he's talking about an event that transpired between the death of Christ and his resurrection between the time he was laid in the tomb and was raised from the dead on Sunday morning. And so um, it appears to me that he did not, when he said into your hands, I commit my spirit, that he did not actually at that moment, enter into the presence of the father. He's just entrusting all that he is and all that's going to transpire to the father. Remember he had said to Mary there in the garden of Gethsemane, I've not yet ascended to the father. So in his spirit, he went and he preached uh, to spirits, so let me just read it, uh, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. And the word now, again, is on italics, but it's assumed and rightly so because of the tense that's used here in the Greek New Testament. So Jesus, in his spirit, between the time he was laid in the tomb, Friday before the Sabbath began, And before early Sunday morning was when he was raised from the dead in his spirit, he went in, he went on a preaching mission to who to a certain group of spirits who were disobedient during the days of Noah. And then on the third day, he was literally physically raised from the dead. So his spirit went back into his body, but he was brought out in a resurrection body. Jesus is the first fruits of all those who would be raised So he's the first one ever to come out in a resurrection body. Uh, There are other people who were raised from the dead, uh, three in the new Testament, two in the old Testament, but they were raised to life out of death. Jesus was raised out in a resurrection body. And there's a distinction and uh, in whom now he's at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and powers had been subdued. So he went on a preaching mission and, Letting scripture interpret scripture in second Peter and the book of Judy, he went to a place called Tartarus, which is a certain section of hell in which certain angelic spirits are locked up. So the rest of the angelic world uh, have freedom to roam. And so you see passages like Daniel 10, where a spiritual battle is taking place in the heavenlies between holy angels and fallen angels. Paul speaks of fallen demons that wage war against us in Ephesians 6. But there is a class of angels that did not see and witness the spectacle that was made of them, over them that Colossians 2, uh, 15 and following speak of. And so Jesus made sure that everyone in all the universe in the spiritual realm knew of his victory over Satan and all his fallen angels. So he didn't go to hell to pay for sin. He finished the payment on the cross. He could shout to Telestai, but he did between the time he died and the time he was raised on Sunday morning, go on a preaching mission in his spirit. And then his spirit came back into his new resurrection body that we'll see him in, in heaven. He walked on the earth for 40 days, then he ascended to the Father. Great question. Let's go to the next one.
1: We do have a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Good morning. Thanks for holding. You're on the Bible line.
2: Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Pastor. Good morning. Um, I have a question, and... Pretty much a statement that I'd like you to comment on, and the the question is: I, I, I studying and 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 reading James and some of the things that Apostle Paul said um, about faith versus works. Do Catholics did they did they misinterpret the book of James to where they they place so much importance on the value of works, actually putting it equal with faith? And my statement is. With uh, Bill O'Reilly coming out now with a movie based on his book, Killing Jesus, um, after some of the comments he made saying the Bible is allegorical, I don't believe I would trust this as far as I could throw him as being something that uh, would be scripturally based. And I'll, I'll let you comment on that.
0: Well, it's a good question, and it's uh, these are important issues. yesterday, I uh, was driving over to uh, Hilton Head on my day off and I was listening to actually on an AM station to a Roman Catholic apologist. And oh, I just, just kept cringing because of all the error that I was uh, listening to. And of course, he quoted James uh, chapter two, which I think actually is airing in our Roman series right now. And uh, if you go to uh, search the org uh um dealing with the text of scripture it's a it's a theological collision of sorts between what the apostle Paul said in the book of Romans in the third chapter and what James apparently said. And of course there are no contradictions, but it says here, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And so there's a very pointed, explicit Statement that we're saved by faith apart from the works of the law, and then James three twenty four says, "You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone." And so, if you were to take uh, the Roman Catholic position, and this is important because this is what the Reformation was over—really, uh, the bottom line issue was how is a person made right? The, the reformation largely dealt with issues of salvation. They dealt with other issues, but the principal issue of the reformation with guys like Luther, especially dealt with the doctrine of soteriology. Soto means to save. And so when we speak of the doctrine of soteriology, we're speaking of the doctrine of salvation. And the Roman Catholic church basically said, if you were, well, let let me give you some different equations. Sometimes you ask a person, why should God let you into heaven? And they'll say well I'm a good person I go to church I try to live right and they are basically saying that good works will equal or equate to salvation uh, Paul said in in Galatians uh, chapter uh, 2 and verse 21 if a man could be justified by by works then there is no need for Christ to die um, we're not saved by works uh, it makes Christ's death meaningless and void he could have just come and taught us how to live how to do works, what kind of works we should do or shouldn't do. And then he could have ascended into the, to the father, but he doesn't ascend to the father until after he's dead, buried, raised, walks on the earth for 40 days. And then the ascension to the father takes place. But remember, as he said, no one will take my life away from me. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it back up. So he chose to die. He didn't have to die. It wasn't a result of just some angry mob or it was planned. It was prophesied. It was predicted, uh, starting in Genesis chapter three and unfolded all the way through the old Testament, illustrated by type and foretold by direct prophecy. So his death was planned and it was a payment for sin again from the cross uh the seven sayings that christ made that are recorded in the new testament i I believe he said much more based on what we read in the psalms but there are seven sayings that are recorded in the new testament and of course uh, the next to the last thing he said was to tell and it's a it's a greek word it's one word in greek it's one word in aramaic In, in case languages like Latin, like Greek, um, very often the subject, the verb, everything is contained in a single word. And so we'd take three words to translate it in English. It is finished. When I go to uh, Eastern Europe and I preach there, I don't have to explain that because they have one word in their Bible Uh, because Russian and all the Slavic languages, Ukrainian, Romanian, all those languages, they come out of the Greek language. And so there's a lot of similarities between the two. In 1961, in the city of Jerusalem, they unfolded a first century tax office where they dug up some ancient tax receipts that went dated to the day of the Lord Jesus. It was a Roman tax collector's office. And they found these receipts where next to the names of people who had paid their tax was written the word to They're actually on display in the Rockefeller Mug- Museum there in the city of Jerusalem. It's a Greek word that means paid in full. So Jesus paid our debt, not partially, but in full. And that's what the issue of the Reformation is about. Did he pay it in full? So if a person says, Well, I'm saved by good works, he's either saying, I'm ignorant or I'm denying what God said. The Roman Catholic position would say, well, your faith in Christ, they don't deny the death, burial and resurrection of Christ. They, they would affirm that, uh, but they would say your faith in Christ plus the good works you do will equate to salvation. So they see salvation as a cooperative effort. And one of the headquarter texts that they use is the book of James uh, that I just read. But James is not dealing with, with the um, root of salvation. He's dealing with the fruit of salvation. He's not dealing with justification before men, uh, before God. He's dealing with justification before men. And so there's a big difference. And that's a portion of scripture, by the way, I think every Christian ought to know how to walk through because it's a commonly asked question that you will get, especially as you witness to the, you know, portion of the 1 billion Roman Catholics who are on the planet. That's not to say all Roman Catholics are lost. They're certainly not. There are born again, Roman Catholics who don't know what the Catholic church teaches Uh, and through their study of scripture or listening to a radio broadcast like this. They, they, they come to faith in Christ, but look, God is either going to save you all by himself without any help from you or he's not going to save you at all. You're either saved by grace alone through faith alone, or you're not saved at all. And so this Catholic apologist yesterday was arguing that, no, you're not saved by grace alone. It's grace plus works. And this dear man called, he sounded like he was probably in his seventies. And I prayed for him after he hung up because the guy just gave him a bad answer. And he said, you know, well, you know, I believe in Jesus. I'm really trying to, to, to live right and to do my best. And, and I, uh, you know, I, I want to get to heaven. And he said, but you know, can you believe in once saved, always saved? And he said, no, 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 that that's not taught. That's just the fundamentalist gospel. That's not in the Bible. We don't believe that we can know for sure that we're going to heaven. And so this is a, like a key Roman Catholic apologist who's on uh, radio stations all across North America And they broadcast him uh, on 7.30 uh, a.m. out of Savannah. It's one of the many outlets that they have. So the Catholics are now trying to do what evangelicals are doing, you know, via the radio. And this dear man, you know, was just told that, no, just keep working and hopefully you will have a, a vision of God someday and see the Lord in heaven. But no one can know. That's what he said. Well, that's logical if you believe that works help save Now, works are important, but they're clearly the fruit of salvation. Oh, three or four years ago, I happened to uh, turn on the radio, and uh, I I wasn't at 88.7 FM, but I was uh, listening to Bill O'Reilly, and uh, Bill O'Reilly had a caller, and his basic, this, this is a near direct quote, he said, well, we all know that you know, as Christians, we basically believe the same things. That if you do enough good things, in the end, you will get into heaven. You know, again, that's a that's a clear, flat out denial. And so he has all these people who does this research for him. He has to put his stamp of approval on it, but he doesn't know what he's talking about. He butchered uh, what the Gospel Record says in his book, the the, the death, the killing of Jesus, the uh, the murder of Jesus. He he, he butchered it. He has no understanding. No, I, I wouldn't put any trust in what he says. He, the man's lost. He's lost. Pray for him that that God would help him to find the Lord Jesus as his personal Savior. Anyway, let's go to the next question.
1: All right. And um, I think maybe we need to have you repent about listening to all these other radio stations. I know it's awful. <laughs> well, most of the time I'm at
0: 88.7, but... Um, anyway, yesterday I thought oh, I, I want to see what they're talking. I actually was uh, tuning through. and wanted to see what Rush was saying about the elections that are going on in Israel, mm. even as we speak. I don't think the polls have closed yet over there, but this is an important issue, and uh, for us as evangelicals, and really for the world, because God's going to consummate. Uh, history through Israel. and The man who's running against him, he wants to do some things that are actually prophesied in the Bible. I won't go there today, but um, in either case, uh, as I was scanning over there, because I don't have a preset on whatever station rush was on. I, I hit this guy and I stopped there and I listened to him for the next 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually called up. (laughs) You did? (laughs) I did. But I only had about 60 seconds. And he was talking about um, this man called and, and just some really crazy stuff. You know, like, again, because of the sinlessness of Mary, because they believe Mary was immaculately conceived. He was arguing that when she gave birth to the Lord Jesus, she felt no pain. Uh, Because, you know, in pain, you will in in childbirth, you shall have pain. That's a result of the curse. And since she didn't come under the curse, she argued that when Jesus was delivered, he said, well, we're not sure exactly how it came, how it worked out, whether she just suddenly appeared, whether Jesus just suddenly appeared from her womb and was in her arms I mean, just crazy stuff. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and these dear people calling and asking questions and. You know, just one error after the other, it just, it reminded me of Perry Noble when mm-hmm. I listened to him. Uh, it just was so sad. And the sad thing is, is if people today, and Perry Noble is going after evangelicals and he's going to go after people in Beaufort County. Uh, if people don't know their Bibles, uh, they don't know any better and they're easily led astray. Anyway, uh, well, I won't, he, he, he cut me off, but just because he ran out of time, not because he was mad at me, but... Uh, It was over an issue of whether Jesus had brothers, and and Guy obviously knew nothing of the original languages, and he said, well, the word brother can mean cousin in Greek. Well, actually not. There's a word adelphos, which is brothers, and then there's a prefix you would um, uh, transliterate it with the the English letters K-S, then adelphos, A-D-E-L-P-H-O-S, which is the word for cousin, never used, never ever used in the Greek New Testament brothers means brothers and the caller right before that while I was on hold was talking about the fact he said is it okay to believe in six literal days of creation that had happened in six 24 hour days or are the days real long periods of time and he came on he said well you can believe whatever you want on it but in my view they were long periods of time And he said, you know, Peter says a day with the Lord is like a thousand years. He said, you could say a day like the Lord is like a a zillion years. So he uses that analogy. And so I get on and I said, well, thank you, John, for having me on. And, um, you know, as I'm sitting here listening to you, you're creating questions in my mind. But thank you for giving us the freedom that uh, we don't have to believe in millions of years on this issue. Because certainly Moses didn't because when he reflects on the six days of creation in Acts chapter 20 he said in six he said in six days you shall do your work on the seventh day you shall rest reason because god created the world in six days and rested on the seventh so god made a parallel through his servant moses so thank you for giving us the freedom on that and then i said but you know in the greek new testament brothers need brothers oh carl we're out of time (laughs) and we really were out of time Uh, we've got to go but go to my website da 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 so I got a word in, but um, mm.
1: it was interesting. Mm. Well, indeed. And uh, I remember you telling me a long time ago that um, you had uh, gotten one of your professors at uh, uh, B.C. upset at you because he thought you were presumptuous in thinking that uh, you could be sure of your salvation and that it was a permanent salvation.
0: That's right. He was a, a Jesuit who actually was a, a congregational pastor converted Roman Catholic, Father Willis. He's dead now. But um, we're discussing, I took a course. I was an accounting major. I was in the CPA program in the School of Business at at BC. Uh, But I took all my elective courses in the School of Religion. Just one, I was a new Christian. I figured it gave me an excuse to study the Bible and, you know, shore up on Christian apologetics. And so uh, it was called uh, Religion in America, and it was the history of religion in America. It was a really interesting course. And uh, he was speaking about, on that particular day, about a very famous sermon that was done by Jonathan Edwards called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he's talking about how Edwards, like evangelicals, believe that you could be saved and know it. And then he said, in fact, Luther taught this, that you could know and have assurance of salvation. And he was saying how he's wrong. So I raised my hand. I said, well, Father Willis... Um, You know, I agree with Martin Luther, and I quoted Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and then he pointed his finger at me in front of about 100 students in the class. He said, "Brooke, you're arrogant. You must really think you're something to say you know you're going to heaven. And I said, well, Father Willis, I understand your point. It would be arrogance for me to say I know I'm going to heaven if it were based on what I've done or do. Because then I'd be saying the reason I know and you don't is I'm better than you. But it's not on that basis it's by grace, through faith and not of works anyway the, but he and I, believe it or not, developed a friendship in the next year, my senior year, both semesters when he could taught the course, he let me come in to the classroom. And to present the evangelical viewpoint on Christianity. So I passed out over 100 copies both semesters of the four spiritual laws. And I walked people through the plan of salvation. Mm. It was an opportunity. And then just before I left for my first assignment in the fall of uh, 1978 to go to the University of North Carolina, he let me in one more time. Uh, And uh, I spoke as one of his first speakers. And, of course, he'd bring in all these outside people. You know, here is someone from the Mormon church. Here is someone from the Lutheran church and all these different faiths as we studied religion in America. So he let me in and I I had a chance to share the gospel. Whether or not he ever met Christ, I don't know. Sure hope he did because he's dead now and he's either in heaven or hell. So
1: I never heard the rest of that story. Very, very interesting. Okay. Uh, We've got a number of other callers that have uh, dictated their question. Uh, From Concord, New Hampshire, uh, this person writes, "Uh, I felt like you ran out of time last week with a question about your name being erased from the Book of Life and what Moses said about his name being blotted out. Can you clarify? I can. Um, I I think someone called
0: uh, in reference to this text of Scripture from Revelation chapter 3, he's addressing the church in Sardis and to the angelos, to the uh, the word angel is used of literal angels or sometimes of people who are called angels. And again, uh, in many languages of the world, they just put the word angelos and then your mind has to supply the context. Like we were speaking about on Sunday, the word deacon can be used, so to speak, with a capital D. Referring to the office, that's clear in passages like to all the elders and deacons who are in Philippi in Philippians 1 1. He's not speaking to a servant in general, which is what the word uh, deacon means. Jesus said, He that would be great among you, let him be the deacon of all. Uh, there, the servant, it's the word deacon. Obviously, he's not referring to the word office. Well, the same with the word angel. John the Baptist is called the angel of God. Was he a literal angel? No, he was a messenger, which is what the word means. His disciples are called angeloi, in the plural. They're called angels. Was he calling them literal angels? No, they were messengers of God. So I take it that when he writes to the angel, he's writing to the senior pastor, we would say, uh, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up. And strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. If, therefore, you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy he who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So here the Lord Jesus is speaking of believers and it has nothing to do with uh, losing salvation. It's actually, this is a promise. This is a verse of assurance of salvation, of our security because these this group within the church at sardis had demonstrated that they had been born again Uh, they are said to have have robes of righteousness why because they've had a second birth and the second birth is seen by their changed life Uh, if you know you have faith with no works it's not a genuine faith which again is what james is referring to A true faith elicits itself and works. So getting back to that equation, the biblical position would be faith in Christ alone equals salvation plus good works. That's different from the Roman Catholic view that says faith in Christ plus good works equals salvation. No, the biblical view would say faith in Christ alone equals salvation plus good deeds. Good deeds are on the right side of the equation they're the fruit there, the evidence there, the proof and that's what jesus is saying and because uh these are genuine christians their names will not be erased from the book of life but i will confess his name before my father who's in heaven some christians take that um in some good expositors that the name of every person at the beginning of the time to- of time the living and the saved are written in the book of life <laughs> excuse me and then their names are erased when they leave this world if they 've not received Christ, uh, but again, even that interpretation does not uh contradict what the rest of the New Testament teaches. I think when we 're dealing with uh Moses and and I kind of ran out of time because if I remember that caller uh, asked like four questions in one, and so you know we, we we try to ask people to keep it to one question, but I tried to answer as many as I could, and they were stacking up but there is a text in in the book of Exodus chapter 32 and I don't think I ever got to that and so that's what this person is asking Um, and it came about on the next day that Moses said to the people you yourselves have committed a great sin and now I am going up to the Lord to Yahweh it's capital L capital O capital R capital D by the way um, most English Bibles distinguish uh, the word Lord with a capital L O R D all in caps or capital L small letter O R D dealing with two different Hebrew names Yahweh or Adonai. So he uses the word yade, Yahweh that God is the covenant God. Um, and I'm going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord to Yahweh and said, alas, alas, this people has committed a great sin. And they have made a God of gold for themselves. But now if thou wilt, if you will forgive their sin. And if not, please blot me from your book, which you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. But go now, lead the people where I've told you. So there's a couple different books that God has in his library. There's the, uh, the book of the saved. Uh, it's also called the, the Lamb's Book of Life. It's also called the Book of Life in Scripture. And in that book, at least in the end of time, are the names of everyone who has received Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. But the Book of the Living is a different book, which is what Exodus 2, which is what Psalm 69, Psalm 139 speaks of. And this is a book that records all those who are alive, and their names are erased when they die because they're no longer alive and then there's the book of the lost which contain all the names of all the lost people of all times uh, revelation 20 11 to 15 makes that um, reference and, and then there's what uh, Malachi calls um, the book of remembrance where God remembers all of our deeds as believers, he doesn't forget them, and Hebrews six ten affirms that same truth. So there are different books in God's library, um, but God does not uh, deny here in Revelation three, or through Exodus thirty two that one can lose their salvation. Good question, though. Let's go to the next one.
1: All right. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980 if you have a question, or email us, as did Placido from Wittonsville, Massachusetts. Email us at tbl at wagp.net. He'd like to know, is it ever okay to lie like Rahab and midwives in Exodus? I'm really wrestling with this question, he writes. I believe that if Jesus was ever in the same situation, he'd never lie because he is the truth. What do you think?
0: Well, uh, lying is never right. It's never right to lie. Um, God God never, ever says to do evil so that uh, good might come. The the end does not always justify the means. Uh, You know, I tried to put in my mind... um, uh, a chapter title for every chapter in Proverbs so that it becomes a working tool for me. And so in Proverbs 6, I entitled it, in my mind, Things That God Hates, because it's kind of a theme in that chapter. And there's a couple verses in there. There are six things that God hates, yea, seven. And when you see, like, the four, five, the three, four, the six, seven pattern, uh, that's a that's a form of writing that Hebrew people will use to put emphasis, especially on the last. Oh, six things God hates, but seven, and the seventh thing in the list, of course, is uh those uh with with lying lips. God hates those kinds of things uh it's It's never right to lie. I just read it let's see the other day uh from the book of proverbs in proverbs um <laughs> twelve twenty two lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, so you know god God doesn't like lying. Uh, and we can 't justify it, we can 't make excuses for our lies now the The two classic examples that are often used are the mid midwives uh, you 'll find them in Exodus chapter one and um, of course uh, let me let me just read that because I think sometimes we read into the midwives something that we shouldn 't. Exodus 1 and verses uh, beginning in verse here it is 17 but the midwives well let me back it up a little then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives one of whom was named Shapara and the others named Pua and he said when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool if it is a son then you shall put him to death but if it is a daughter then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them. Why? Because it's the principle that um, Peter affirms. We must obey God rather than men. They feared God more than they feared men. So they did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing? And let the boy live boys live and the midwives said to Pharaoh because the Hebrew women are not as Egyptian women for they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwife can get to them so God was good to the midwives and the people multiplied and became very mighty and so some would say that well here's a here's some people who flat out lied and God blessed them for their lying well they may have told the truth it, it may have been that the Hebrew women Fearing the king's wrath didn 't call for the midwives in a timely way, and so what they said was absolutely true in addition, I think we could say that one is not obligated to tell all that he or she knows. Uh, you can withhold information without necessarily speaking a lie um, and um, let me let me read a text of scripture to you from I think it 's in Matthew chapter ten and uh, Matthew ten and it 's in uh, verse Let's see 16 behold I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves therefore be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves so sometimes in shrewdness you can withhold information without necessarily being deceptive Uh, but let's just say for the sake of argument that they were deceptive that they did lie God rewarded them not for their words but he rewards them for their works they were blessed for refusing to murder little babies And uh, so sometimes, you know, the Bible in narrative portions of scripture will record uh, an event and all that took place without necessarily, you know, passing a a moral judgment on what God has written. Uh, Rahab might, some might say is a little more challenging uh, issue. Remember Rahab, she hid the spies and so forth. And um, James mentions her and uh, he uses her as an illustration, getting back to this uh, James 2 passage he uses her as an illustration of faith without works as dad. And he highlights two people, one who is a, a saint of God, so to speak. He's known for his great faith, uh, Abraham, and he's willing to offer Isaac up there on Mount Moriah. And of course, the order of events is really important in James two. It's not by accident how he lists those because Abraham was justified in Genesis 15 uh, before God but how do you know whether it was a real genuine faith? Well, Genesis 22, when he offers Isaac up there on Mount Moriah. And so it's very important how James uh, orders those things, because again, he's dealing with the evidence of his faith, with the fruit of his faith, not with the means of his faith. So in Joshua chapter two, we're given the record of Rahab, who James, of course, you know, mentions, and we read in Joshua two, um, But the woman, but the woman, referring to Rahab, had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. And it came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stocks of flack, which she had laid uh, in order on the roof. So the men... Uh, uh, pursued them on the road to the Jordan, to the Fords. And as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. So they would say, well, you know, Rahab, she's commended for her faith. uh, And, and by James, the apostle, um, and she lied. So therefore God commends lying, not to mention that Rahab is, you know, preserved along with her whole family. No, she's never rewarded for, Uh, for telling a lie she's rewarded for her hospitality and for the fact that she came to the living God in faith. You know, she was a prostitute and all these uh, camel jockeys, I guess, came through her parlor over the years and said, you know what happened out there in the wilderness? This God, this God of Israel, he did all these miracles. In fact, he split the Red Sea in half and she heard it and she heard it and she believed it. And she was saved. She, she came to genuine sa- faith. And she proved that she had come to genuine faith, which is how James is using her as a fruit of faith. Again, to speak of justification, not before God, but before men. She proved her faith, not by her words of deception, but by the protection that she offers for the spies. Um, some people will say, what about Corey Tamboon? You know, well, she could have said nothing. Uh, she could have asked a question like, what's a Jew? Um, she she didn't have to lie. Uh, in fact, her sister, if you remember that, she did lie and she lost her life for it. Um, so again, God is sovereign. He's uh, rules in the affairs of men and nations. Sometimes we do things at times we wish we hadn't. And we receive God's forgiveness and his cleansing. Every Christian is told to lie at some point. And, uh, but Christians hate lying. One of the things that characterize an unbeliever who is not allowed into the kingdom of God, according to the revelation twice over at the last two chapters is they love to lie. Well, God's people don't love to lie. Uh, they, they, um, they love the truth. So again, sometimes God lists things in scripture And it's not necessarily something he's recommending. It's just something he reports on. And you have to distinguish between what the Bible records and what it requires and what it dictates and what it commands. So you wouldn't want to justify lying based on Rahab. All right. So I hope that helps. I think we've got time for a few
1: more questions. Indeed. Gregory from Derry, New Hampshire writes, as a Christian, the topic of homosexuality always comes up on how it is a sin, but the many secular thinkers around me almost harass me for saying such a thing. My question is, if I get into this this debate again, what should I do or what should I say? Where should I look in Scripture to verify my points? Well, you could go to searchthescriptures.org
0: or you could just go to YouTube, type in YouTube and ask the question, is it okay to be gay? And put my name, Carl Brogy. And I have a sermon on YouTube as well at as at searchthescripture.org, and I go through every single passage, every passage in both the Old and the New Testaments on this issue of homosexuality. So it's a very in depth sermon. It's over an hour long, but if you want to study this issue, I think this would be extremely useful to you. Because God's word is very clear, and it's under constant attack. Rick, I confess, I was also at the public radio station yesterday. I thought, well, it's the top of the hour, and I'll listen to um, you know, NPR news, but I guess it was too early in the afternoon, and so they had some other show. And they're interviewing this dear mom who has uh, a four-year-old whom the mother says is transgender. And who, at the age of four, decided that she did not want to be a girl anymore, but a boy. And she's arguing from the youth of this little child that there's such a thing as being transgender. And, of course, the public radio station is promoting that this is why we don't give money as evangelicals to public radio. This is why you should be supporting stations like WAGP and Christian radio. Believers and unbelievers alike can give to something like public TV or public radio. Only Christians can give to these kinds of stations. And if you listen to, you know, public radio or public TV lately, the agenda for the homosexual movement is like front and center. They are really pushing it hard. And so if you want to support those kinds of things and give to that, but look, there was something else going on in that child's life. I promise you there was something else going on in that child's life. That precipitated this confusion. Um, that girl was harmed, she was hurt, she was molested. Something happened, I promise you. There is no such thing as being transgender. No such thing. You're either male or female. God created them male and female, not male, female, and transgender. So uh, I would say to this um, person from connecticut listen to my message is it okay to be gay you can hear it at search dot org or you can type in youtube carl Brogy. is it okay to be gay and you can pull it down there either way we're out of time again an hour went by so quick as it always does here for another bible line god willing we'll be back next tuesday to take your questions if we didn't answer them They'll be front and center next week. Have a great day as you walk with Jesus Christ.